Welcome to Distrust and Disparities, Dismantling Black Health Disparities podcast. We examine health disparities that disproportionately affect Black women and Black families. In addition, we amplify organizations and individuals working to dismantle racist health practices and systems to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Camille White. In some arenas, he's known as the father of modern gynecology, but then if you're aware of what he did, he's known as Father Butcher. In this episode, we discuss the mothers of gynecology, Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy. They were enslaved women that were experimented on by Dr. James Marion Sims to perfect surgical techniques for women. And we highlight the Black OBGYN Project, whose mission is to educate and promote anti-racism, equity, and inclusion within gynecology, women's health, and reproductive health care. So welcome back to Distrust and Disparities podcast. We are so excited to be back. Whoop, whoop, we're here. Right. <laughs> A lot of things have happened between now and the end of last season. We have lots to unpack. Mm-hmm. Um, Camille, I don't know if you saw the tweet or the meme that says, I'm tired of living in unprecedented times. That's just how I'm feeling right now. It's just like one thing after another. And I know we ended our last season back in Mental Health May. And Mm -hmm. man. (laughs) A lot. A lot has happened. And it's just like, ooh, I mean, damn. That's how I feel. Yes. It's unprecedented times. It's like, I'm tired. We are all tired. I don't need to hear that word used again. I don't need to be a part of unprecedented times unless it's like, you know, something very positive and uplifting and encouraging. And like you have those small moments, but like a lot of it is just like something crazy just drowns out the good things going on. And it's just like you can't shake yeah. What you're learning, what you're hearing. And I know everybody's familiar with like the news headlines. Mm-hmm. But we are excited to be back. And for this week's episode, we want to discuss the mothers of gynecology, Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy. And so often the focus has been on the doctor, James Marion Sims, and his legacy of creating surgical techniques and instruments for women. However, they often leave out that he perfected his techniques by basically torturing and experimenting on enslaved Black women. And like so many times, Black women's, their contributions, and even when it comes to medical experimentation on Black people, it is left out of the picture, or they try to skew or gloss over the details. And this is specific to American history and you know, they don't want to acknowledge the horrible racist details, especially when it comes to the medical field. In recent light, there has been some reckoning with what has been going on, especially some conversations concerning Sims. There are like a few statues of him that are erected. I know, I believe they might've just took the one down in Central Park, but I know there's like another one in South Carolina. So we just want to 
have a conversation about what James Marion Sims actually did to these women and also how he tried to hide their identity and also what his experimentation, how it has had a lasting impact on medicine and Black women and Black families. In 1845, Dr. James Marion Sims, he started his experiments on enslaved women. At the time, Sims was a medical physician, and in order to make ends meet, he also worked as a plantation doctor, and he also had to treat enslaved people. Around 1845, that's when he officially began those experiments to repair a medical condition called vesicovaginal fistula. And this specific type of fistula, the vesicovaginal fistula is an opening between the vagina and the bladder or the vagina and the rectum. So this area is supposed to be closed. It typically occurs in women after a traumatic birth. So having a baby being pushed out the birth canal, it creates an unnatural opening between either the vagina or the bladder or the vagina and the rectum. And it's a very painful experience. And, you know, this opening does not close on its own. Enslaved women, they had higher rates of this condition, and it was due to a couple of factors. One, the biggest being malnutrition, not having like the proper diet, protein and vegetables and vitamin deficiencies, and also Having a small pelvis puts you at an increased risk for having a vesicle vaginal fistula. And oftentimes, enslaved women, they were having children about three to four years earlier than white women. And this was due to, at that time during slavery, they were being raped and also producing children to increase the number of enslaved people. So having children at a younger age where your pelvis is not fully developed will, once you push out a child, you're at risk for a a lot of people may be familiar with the term tearing. When people say I tore, this tearing is like where it doesn't go back on its own. There's like a complete opening between either your bladder or your rectum. And also the use of forceps also will put you at risk, especially during this time in the 1800s, Forceps were new during the birthing experience. So a lot of times, especially the male physicians, they didn't have that much training in women's health. So they're just pushing in those forceps without knowing what they're doing and knowing the full anatomy of women. Before the change of the century, midwives were the main ones that were involved in the birthing of children. And they like typically... We were saying a woman is designed to be able to push out a baby naturally without many interventions. So inserting the forceps can put you at risk for having a vesicle vaginal fistula. And the condition was highly stigmatized and an unpleasant disease due to this opening. It caused incontinence, which is unable to control your urination. And also it resulted in frequent infections and also odor. So enslaved women, they wouldn't be able to reproduce. Also, it made it difficult for them to work. And also white women who suffer from this condition, they were outcasts of the society. 
this is something that is, it's naturally occurring because of birth. You know, women are bringing life into this world and depending on racially how you exist in this society, either, you know, you're an outcast and you're seen as like, uh, some other sort of creature thing, or as an enslaved woman, as a black woman at that time, you're just sort of thrown away because your use of mm-hmm. either working on a plantation or working in terms of using your body to create more enslaved people, you can't do that. So again, you're thrown away. You're useless to you're useless to people that own slaves and there's no real help for you because mm-hmm. you they don't care. You're you're a woman and you should be able to have as many children as a man wants you to. And when you can't do that, then you know, you're you're no longer their problem. They don't want to deal with you anymore. Yeah. Just really sad. Just the condition just impacts you in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And Sims, his first encounter with the vesco-vaginal fistula was when he went to treat an enslaved woman named Anarka. And this was on the Westcott Plantation, which was right outside of Montgomery, Alabama. According to records, Anarka was only 17 years old and she was having her first child. And she was reportedly in labor for three days. And that's an extremely long time. So that's Mm -hmm. a very scary situation and also very exhausting trying to push out a child for over 72 hours. And Sims, he was called to the plantation on that third day. At first, he initially did not want to treat her. He wasn't interested in treating women. But during the birth, he used the obstetrical forceps. And it was noted that he didn't have that much experience with using those during this process. Unfortunately, the baby did not survive. And Anarka, she was left with a torn vagina and she had an opening between her bladder and her rectum. So she ended up with a vesicle vaginal fistula. This resulted in her being unable to control her bladder functions. So with that opening and the urine pouring on that inflamed tissue, it was just extremely painful. And in addition to the pain, she also suffered from recurrent infections and also odor. You can just imagine after being in such a traumatic labor and your baby dying, and then also you're left with this horrible condition that you're in so much pain. Just imagine just what she's dealing with. Just so much she has to be going through at 17 years old. Mm -hmm. That's just so insane to think of like the trauma, the severe trauma that she's dealing with. Mm -hmm. And like we mentioned, she's still enslaved. So you're not getting probably getting any sympathy, if any, as much. You still probably expect it to work or do anything. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of times you're often blamed for this condition as if it was something that you caused yeah. um, the body to do. So, And Sims, after taking care of Anarka, he realized that he could be a trailblazer in the gynecological field or the obstetrics field if he could repair these fistulas. 
And more importantly, he recognized that he could make a lot of money by curing this condition, especially in white women. Mm. So, so here comes this man and here comes capitalism to go. You know, there's some part of it where it's just like, oh, he wants to help people. But really, it's like he wants to make a bunch of money and be known as like, you know, this hero that that helped women overcome this this condition that has been plaguing them for so long when, you know, that's that's not out of like benevolence at that point. That's really to just like be able to have a bunch of people pat you on the back and go like, look at you. Aren't you so awesome? Because mm-hmm. before this, he wasn't interested in treating women, but then he recognized if he could cure this condition, he could make a lot of money and, you know, be recognized. Mm-hmm. So now we can sort of focus on because of that sort of thought of like, oh, this is what I can do. Sims started going into really the experiment phase of what he was doing to these enslaved women. So Sims acquired approximately 10 more enslaved women that had the vesicovaginal fistulas. And we only know the names of the three women of Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy because they are mentioned throughout his writings and research. And Sims set up a makeshift wooden cabin and that was to sort of you know treat these women but he was really conducting his experiments on them and these experiments took place over four years between 1845 and 1849 and according to a medical historian Vanessa Northington Gamble quote these women became props in his journey of scientific discovery And as an enslaved woman, you know, you don't have any rights. You're not even seen as a human being. So they couldn't refuse experimentation. They were basically his property and he could do with them whatever he wanted. And Mm -hmm. because of that, he started to do a series of experimental surgeries on these women. You know, being enslaved women, being that like you, he wasn't seeing them as women, as people, he performed these surgeries while they were completely naked. But during that time period, doctors examined women while they were moderately clothed and, you know, women were treated delicately. But again, because they're black women, they're enslaved women, they weren't seen as that, you know, they're just property. Mm -hmm. You might as well treat them like cattle and not treat them as though they have any dignity. So their dignity was taken away from them with these experiments and being treated in that way. And Sims even invited other physicians to observe the operations. So, you know, that's sort of a standard practice of you invite colleagues to see what you have going on, but the the patient shouldn't just be exposed in such a way that removes their dignity. And he even let some of these other physicians take turns inserting something called like a special speculum, which allowed them to fully view inside of the vaginal cavity. Mm -hmm. And it was even noted, too, that just, you know, regular everyday people were even allowed to come and watch. Prior to this time, mostly, like we mentioned, midwives were taking care of women, especially even if they were having like 
outside of just having the baby, just any other issues that we're dealing with, what people would consider like women's health issues, it would Mm -hmm. be another woman or like a midwife that specializes in those things. So when physicians were starting to enter the obstetrics field, they still treated women like white women that they were seeing delicately. You know, I even read something they would like look away. The women at this time, when they had those like heavy skirts and everything, they would Mm. still have them on and, Mm -hmm. you know, something covering and, you know, just imagine going through all this way so that they can protect their dignity. But when it came to Anarcha, Betsy and Lucy and the other women that were not named, it's just they're just out in the open just for a full display and... They were starting to develop the what we use, the speculum, when you um, have your gynecological exam so that you can view the whole vaginal cavity. This was still new. So doctors were flocking to his little cabin just to see all this that's going on. It's just like these women are just put on display while he tries to figure out what he's doing. And like you were saying, just their dignity, it didn't matter. It, it wasn't a factor. They were property, essentially. Yeah. And because they were property, they they couldn't refuse. They couldn't Mm -hmm. give consent in any way to say, like, at least, like, can I please put on some clothing? Because, I mean, you don't need to have a woman completely naked to do any sort of exam. Like, you know, today when we go to the gynecologist, (laughs) I'm not just laying on a table naked. It's completely unnecessary. But because you don't see these women as people you don't you why you don't see them as people but you definitely don't see them as women so they won't be you wouldn't treat them how you treat white women specifically and additionally with the surgeries as you can imagine i mean we're still in the 1800s but surgeries in general were extremely painful and sims he needed to figure out a way to bring together what was the unnatural openings that formed the vaginal tissues. According to Harriet A. Washington's book, with each procedure, quote, he opted to abrade or scarify the edges of the vaginal tears every time he attempted to repair an opening. He repaired them with sutures and saw them become infected and reopen painfully each time. Can you imagine how painful this is? Like, imagine you have, like, a painful <sighs> scar on any part of your body, and the you suture it up, you repair it, it gets infected, and then they rip those sutures out, and then they close Try them again. Up. Yeah, with no anesthesia. Just imagine your genitals are the most sensitive, ar- are one of the most sensitive areas on your body. Very and sensitive. Imagine... That being done, just them op- reopened and re-sutured over and over again. And anesthesia existed at this time, Camille. Yeah. It it, it was there. 1800s, they were, they were using it. They mm-hmm. knew how to use opium and different things to make sure you felt, you know, as minimal pain as possible. So mm-hmm. it was there. So... But he just refused to use it. And his justification was he claimed that the procedures were not painful enough to justify the trouble and risk associated with administering anesthesia. Um, what? 
how how are you going to claim that again a very sensitive area in your genitals that you know suturing and then that getting infected and then having to redo it again and opening up all that it's not painful enough to justify what he's claiming is the trouble and risk there's plenty of contradictions to this fact so when he initially started the experiments he had several male doctors that were assisting him or watching and they ended up leaving within the year because they could not take the bone chilling streaks coming from the women, like their cries and their yells. Mm -hmm. So if women are crying and yelling, they're in pain. So you know they are in pain. Once he didn't have like doctors to assist him in the procedures, the women had to take turns holding each other down during the procedures. So you, you, you know these women are in pain anytime they have to hold each other down. And also he widely writes and claims that black people did not feel the same pain as white people, but you have actual physical proof that people are in pain while you're conducting your experiments and researching. Like the women are in pain. Yeah. Like what do you just think they're faking it? That makes no sense. And then again, like this is all so traumatic, but then they have even a further sort of shared trauma of like you're forced then to hold another woman down, knowing like the extreme pain that she is going through. And yeah. you have you just have no control. It's just such a feeling I feel like of like hopelessness. Yeah, it's just crazy and what's even more perplexing and it's perplexing to us and also his contemporary doctors so doctors that were working you know during the same time he chose to give the women morphine only after he was done the procedures (laughs) so you know they're in pain and you're giving them pain medication after the procedures Not only did he give them morphine, he gave them very large amounts of opium, which it was stated it was beyond the recommended dosage. So the women, they eventually became addicted to the morphine. And in Harriet A. Washington's book, Medical Apartheid, it explains this practice had more to do with controlling the women's behavior than controlling their pain because the addiction weakened their will to resist repeated procedures. Mm. So he wasn't doing this to help with their pain. You know, it was just, he wanted to control. He wanted to make sure he could still operate and check and make sure to see if the techniques that he was using worked again. Mm -hmm. The surgeries, they were unsuccessful in the beginning, and over a course of five years, he continued to operate on the 10 women that he owned, and it's noted on Antarctica alone, he performed over 30 operations. 30. Can you imagine? That poor woman. And, like, child. She was only 17, When she first encountered him. But like, what was her quality of life? It couldn't have been good. Yeah. Like beyond being enslaved, like, it's so terrible. 
Yeah, it's just so sad. 30 operations. And we don't know how many the other women had Mm -hmm. during that time, what was actually done, but 30 operations. And it wasn't until five years later in 1849 that he was able to close Anarcha's fistula and he perfected his technique. And we don't know if he was able to close any of the other women's fistulas. Like, according mm-hmm. to the book, I think they said less than half he closed. And it was even reported that once he perfected the technique, he didn't even, you know, attempt to go back and fix the other women's fistulas. Because like, oh. it wasn't really about helping them at all. It was mm-hmm. about, oh, I can... Make a claim that, like, look at me. I've done something. Now give me money. hmm Yep. Because after he perfected his technique, he went on to move to New York. And once he perfected the technique and, you know, put it in journals and his research, he began to receive many accolades and national and international recognition after this. He is celebrated as the father of gynecology. A lot of times history, they often, they glossed over how he perfected his technique. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want to acknowledge like Sims, his medical techniques and the instruments that he helped to develop. They helped to cure a really debilitating disease that affected many women. We have to give him credit for that, that... So many women don't have to suffer from vasovascular fistulas because of him. But it's a situation of like, does the end justify the means? And Mm -hmm. when you even have other doctors at the time questioning him of why aren't you using anesthesia? It then goes to show that, yeah, we can acknowledge that what he did has helped people and continues to help people, but he went about it in like the most terrible way possible because he didn't truly see these women, these black women as women, as people, because if he did, he would have used anesthesia. They wouldn't have been completely naked. There would have been a humane way to go about doing this. That actually was about helping them. Like you pointed out, we know that he was able to close up Anarcha's, after many uh, surgeries, but when that happened and he perfected his technique, he didn't then go, okay, here's exactly what I did right. Let me go and help everyone else that I was treating as well. That mm-hmm. that wasn't his motivation. His motivation then was just to like, okay, I got to document this and I got to plaster this everywhere and tell everybody what I've done and leave Alabama and go to New York and, and make a bunch of money. So mm-hmm. it's definitely a situation of... He he wasn't a good person because if he was a good person and he was truly doing this out of benevolence and and wanting to help women no longer suffer through this painful condition, he would have done it in such a different way. Exactly. And many times history, they want to gloss over the medical injustice or the medical exploitation part. They want to leave Mm -hmm. it out. And on this podcast, you know, we want to point out some of the contradictions and also just the lasting impact that he has had. Mm -hmm. So 
Sims, he's been celebrated, but recently there has been a lot of debate over his legacy because it also represents the foundation of some racial health disparities and also medical exploitation. So a few things I wanted to highlight and point out before we move on to our next segment, just so that you guys can think about, especially when it came to pain. He refused to give the women anesthesia while he was operating on them. But as soon as he perfected his technique, he would administer anesthesia to his white female patient. So he wasn't worried about any of the risk of administering anesthesia when it came to working on white women. So that's a big contradiction right there, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's basis of white and black people, they experience pain differently. Mm -hmm. That that truth still holds today. And we're going to explore that in another episode. But as soon as you perfected the technique, you administered anesthesia for white women. So you know that the procedure is painful and you're operating on a sensitive area. And also there's the thing of he hid the slave women's identity. So once he moved up north and he was writing up his papers and different things, in some of his writings, he hid the ethnicity of the slave women. And also even in some of the illustrations, he portrayed the women as white. That was a a big contradiction. And the only reason we know about some of the slave women, he also, they found records of his personal like diaries and his own personal journals and different things that we know that he owned slaves and that he was operating on them. But when it came to talking to like the medical board and in his research teaching, he didn't put the ethnicity of the women. And then also when there was time to create depictions and illustrations, they would be portrayed as white women. I just, I'm at a loss for words. You just, right. you're Same literally thing, like, why? Yeah. Cause it's like, that's, you know, in the moment, immediate erasure of like facts and true history. You're Mm -hmm. erasing these black women from history because you don't want to acknowledge their contributions. You don't want to acknowledge all that they went through and suffered because of you to now where you've gotten to the point of you're being lauded as like this wonderful physician and you're changing the field of gynecology And so now you'll sort of, in a way, give acknowledgement that like, oh, yeah, white women helped me get there, not black women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like you said, he's failing to mention leaving out the part where slavery gave him the means to control these women's bodies and to perform so many operations. What women would let you operate on them willingly over 30 times that we know of? Yeah, especially when, like, there was no anesthesia involved. You're just putting them through this, like, horrific, painful procedure time and time and time again. And, yeah, that would have never happened if you went about it in a way of, like, even asking for their consent. Or if you did, it would have been like, okay, I'm going to give you anesthesia. And then if maybe that didn't work because they needed more than what you could actually give them safely, then these women probably would have been like, ah, I think I'm going to figure out a way to just deal with what I have going on. 
Mm-hmm. And also, I was just thinking, if you gave them anesthesia, they wouldn't be moving as much. They would be perfectly still. You would be able to do what you need to do. And you might you might have been able to solve the problem quicker. But you're intentionally putting these women through pain because you you don't care. It's just like, if it doesn't work, I'm, I'm just going to do it again. I'm going to do it on a different woman. So if they were able to lie perfectly still and their pain was controlled you would be able to have better visual field and less things you have to worry about. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't but, have taken him so many years to finally get it right. You could have gotten it right so much earlier if you just treated them like people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was probably easier. I know for sure it's easier operating on somebody that's holding still mm-hmm. and not wriggling in pain and just wrenching and also just screaming. Yeah. Just imagine somebody screaming at the top of their lungs while you're trying to operate on them. That alone. Yeah. And also another point I wanted to point out that Harriet A. Washington mentions in her book, during this time, many white physicians and just white people in general, they thought African-Americans were just vastly different. Like they assumed that we were less intelligent less sensitive to pain, which we just pointed out, also prone to disease and just biologically a different species from white people. However, after experimenting on black bodies, they would use their scientific research and the cures that they were able to come up with after experimenting on black bodies, they would apply it to white individuals. And it's just this contradiction of, oh, they're so different. They're so different. They're a different species. Mm-hmm. But once you see that something works, you found a cure, you immediately apply it to white people and, you know, you start to, they benefit. Mm-hmm. And that's where this medical injustice piece comes from. Because you're using black bodies for the benefit of white people. And a lot of times when people are arguing like, oh, it's a different time. It's for the greater good, but oftentimes it's for the greater good of either just a specific race or those in a certain class. So you Mm -hmm. see this pattern constantly repeated, those without money, those of a different skin tone, those on the outskirts, the margins of society. We're the backbone. We're the ones that, oh, we can bend the rules if something good comes out of it because, you know, it's benefiting everyone. But a lot of times it's not. You know, Mm-mm. yeah, just, because those are all just racist, just BS justifications. Because as soon as that benefit comes, they say, off of utilizing people you see as disposable, you're now using it on the people with money and power or what you see as like the superior race, which is always like white people. Then that benefit does not all of a sudden go to the rest of the population and community of the people that you were taking advantage of, we're then still on the receiving end of more of your BS and we don't get that same help. All of a sudden, Mm -hmm. it's not like, oh, yes, everyone is now benefiting. Only certain people now benefit. You torture people, you come up with something, you go Eureka, then you take it over to the people that you were really doing it for. And then you leave us to sort of like fend for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have this podcast. That's why we're able to come up with episodes each week. 
because this pattern of thinking and just these patterns of exploiting certain groups of people, it still exists to this day. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why we created this podcast so we can look back at this foundation at which a lot of these disparities got their root and also the root of some of the distrust within the black community started yeah. to form. Because so. once we like take a look at historically where it all started, we can then understand why it continues today. And then only acknowledging the true history can we try to work towards fixing the problems, fixing the racist Mm -hmm. ideologies and fixing the disparities that exist across the Black community. And this is the perfect segue. This is why doing the the second portion of our show, we find it really important to highlight organizations working to counter these specific narratives. So this week's organization that we are highlighting is called the Black OBGYN Project, and it was started by Dr. Rachel Burvell and Dr. Tamandra Morgan as a space to educate and promote anti-racism, equity, and inclusion within the OBGYN field, women's health, and reproductive health care. And the hope with their project is it's to hold space for frank conversations to inspire others to engage, to creatively learn something new, and to consider ways to address inequities. Mm -hmm. And their Instagram is full of posts to learn about Black women's reproductive rights. They have multiple posts honoring Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy, and they're frequently calling for their recognition within reproductive history. As we are discussing now, just trying to shift the narrative, there wouldn't be a father of gynecology without the use and experimentation on Black women's bodies. So that's why we're trying to honor them as the mothers of gynecology. Yeah. Their sacrifice of what happened to them and the experimentation that he conducted on them has resulted in so much for what is now a part of the gynecology field today. And we have all benefited from their sacrifice. So it's so important to acknowledge them. And unfortunately, the nameless other women that were a part of his Mm -hmm. experimentation as well. Mm -hmm. They were the ones who truly you know, helped us get to where we are now and and have the knowledge we have about things and women's bodies and reproductive health care. And the Black OBGYN Project, you can follow them on Instagram. Their posts are very informative. And once you go to their website, if you're enjoying what you're reading and you want to learn more from their posts, because, you know, on Instagram, you're just trying to keep it short and just put the most important information, but you can go to their website and they provide the links where you can read further information. And I wanted to point out, that's how I not really learned about, I knew about James Marion Sims, but just learning, centering the narrative on Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy, Mm because they had multiple posts just discussing the women and just their contributions and just trying to shift the narratives to just the focus being on Sims. But these women, they were the cornerstone. Mm -hmm. 
Additionally to their post, they also have a mentorship program for medical residents in the field of gynecology. So check them out if you're interested in becoming a mentor or also a mentee. They have a Google form where you can reach out to them and just express your interests. And it talks about it was helping each other as we climb because so much of our traditions and history. The field of gynecology it is very hard. So just being able to pass on information to a rising resident and just a mentee, just being able to get that experience to learn somebody, learn from somebody who looks like you that has gone through the same things, very valuable. So make sure you check that out. Please support the Black OBGYN Project by following them on Instagram Also, you can check out their website, and if you know somebody that is interested in becoming an OBGYN doctor, or if you are an OBGYN doctor yourself, if you're interested in being a mentor, please check out their website, which will have the links in our show notes. Also, there is a way to donate specifically to their cause so that they can keep putting out information and also connecting mentors and mentees. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss or share your own personal story, email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Distrust and Disparities and on Twitter at DistrustPod. Thank you.